C4 Church. So glad that you're here this morning. We want to say again, good morning to many of you watching and listening online. I say this a lot. I want to say this again, and let's just do this. For all of you who are watching right now, because you're serving somewhere else, we want to say again, thank you for your service this morning. So let's give them a hand again. So much. Thank you. Thank you. Well, as Joanna said, we're in the middle of our series in the book of Ephesians, and so if you've got a Bible this morning, virtual or physical, we'd love you to navigate or turn there, and if you don't, the scripture is going to be on the screens. And uh, welcome, I think it's week five, to uh, this series, our main series for this year. Now let me re-remind you again, the reason why we decided after we prayed and thought through uh, some of the preaching schedule this year that we would go through the book of Ephesians is because of this theme, that we're all in this together. And the book of Ephesians is the greatest book that speaks about and points to and defines what Christian unity is not just theoretically what it must be. And so chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, Paul, like a lawyer, is actually building the case on why we already are unified. And then in chapter 4 and chapter 5 and chapter 6, he shows us very practically what unity will look like in families, in church, in connect groups. Like he outlines what it actually will function like. And so now we're still in chapter 2 as he's building the case, reminding us, redefining our worldview on unity. Now, many people say that what we're about to read today is actually the high point. It's the climax of the whole letter already in chapter 2. This is like the key that's going to actually unlock the whole book. And so if you want to understand the book of Ephesians at its heart, today is a day to listen very carefully. Now, let me summarize what I preached about last week out of the beginning of chapter 2. Remember what Paul said? Paul said, we're all in this together, and it's really, really, really bad. And then he said, if God does not show up, and if God does not change things, and if God does not reverse the human situation and condition, there is, he said, no hope. None at all. He said that we were, remember, dead spiritually. Our souls were not functioning. We were physically alive, and we have personalities and full of life. But he said, there is no contact with the living God. And he said that we're marked by trespass and sin. We belong to this thing called the world. And the world doesn't just mean the globe that we're all on. He says we are part of an age, a worldview, that everything that we do societally says to God, we're not deeply interested, thanks so much. And then he said there is this person named Satan. He's not allegory. He's not myth. He's real. He's involved in a war against humanity. And positionally, whether you believe it or know it, all of us are owned by him. Like I said at the end of that, if I stopped preaching there, it'd be like, ugh. But Paul says, but there is hope. God did not leave us in our chosen condition. And he says that hope is personified and also is fully experienced in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He said, so all of us have been brought, if you're a Christian, out of that dark sphere, we become children of light. But then he says... So now we've all met Jesus, or some of us have. Great. Now we're all in this together in a new way. Now how in the world do we all stay together as a family? 
So right here in chapter 2, halfway down, starting in verse 11, Paul chooses to dive right in and face down the greatest issue that is facing the local churches he's shepherding. He's already mentioned it at the beginning, but we're going to go through it again. Now, this conflict that he's going to resolve has direct impact on our whole church today. Now, his issue is this. How in the world does he get Jewish people and non-Jewish people, what the Bible calls Gentiles, that have both become Christians, actually, to hang out with each other, eat with each other, look at each other, and actually like each other? How do I take two people who have hated each other for so long and now have met Jesus and say, oh, by the way, 20 minutes ago you were blood enemies and today you're family. Go team, hope it works out. So Paul says, how do we work this through? So what does he do? He chooses once again to remind everybody of what they were before they met Jesus. And so in verse 11, this is how the word of God begins today. Therefore, he says... Remember that formerly you who are non-Jews, Gentiles by birth, and called the uncircumcised by those who called themselves the circumcision, which is done by the body, sorry, which is done in the body by human hands. Now, I'm going to stop right there mid-thought. You're going, what in the world is going on? Now, this is what's being declared. Jews in Paul's day used to say this to declare that non-Jews weren't part of the family. You're not in. Now, you need to know the animosity and the hate, the racial, religious hate that existed over a long period to see the power of the gospel and the power of our unity. See, here's what happened. Many Jewish leaders in Paul's day used to say that non-Jews were only created by God to fuel the fires of hell. Wow, that's encouraging. It was actually one of the oral laws that you were not allowed to help a non-Jewish woman even if she was in trouble during pregnancy because why in the world would you want to bring another pagan into the world? And not only that, the common vernacular by Jews against non-Jews is this. They would walk by people, and I am a non-Jewish person, and they'd call me a dog. Their common statement about everyone who wasn't Jewish is this. You're nothing but a low-life little dog. Now, the Greeks and Romans weren't any better, by the way. On the other hand, they used to hate Jews because they called them atheists. And you're going, what? Jews are an atheist. They're the ones who believe in the one true only living God. Right, but 2,000 years ago, atheism didn't mean you don't believe in God. Atheism meant you only believed in one God. And how stupid can you be? Don't you know there are thousands of God? And since you only believe in one God, you are actually undermining everything we believe in because our worship of those gods are connected to our economic status and our, our tribal understanding. See, you are a threat as a Jew to all of us. Plato used to say that if you were not a Greek, you were a barbarian and a natural enemy. And that mentality spilled over for a long time. And then, of course, the Romans were the Romans, right? They just thought the world was theirs and they should conquer everyone, period. So there it is. Underneath these words of circumcised and uncircumcised, the tension and animosity, hatred fueled by religion, socioeconomic realities is real. Jews called all those other people uncircumcised. See, circumcision for a Jewish person is the physical sign of the Jewish faith. Now, I preached on this a while ago, and I'm going to stop and just do this because it's important. Some of you are thinking this this morning. Why is he talking about circumcision? I'm completely lost. Others of us who've grown up in the church are going, God, I just want to ask you seriously, penis? I mean, nose, belly button, haircut would have been a lot easier. 
Like, why in the world did you have to do this? See, many of us who, who are modern readers don't have a clue what's going on. Many of us who've grown up in the church just shut down when a pastor says circumcision because we're embarrassed or whatever. And then some of you who've never been to church are like, wow, this is not what I expected this morning at church. You're not going to do anything to me. No, it's okay. You're good. So, John, what in the world is going on? Well, let me help you understand the power of the statement of uncircumcised and circumcised and why it fuels what I just said. One scholar said it this way, no doubt that this surgery was symbolic of the sinfulness of people that's passed down generation to generation. The very organ needed to be cleansed of a covering. In other words, man, people at their very center of their nature is sinful and they need a cleansing of their heart. And this symbol that God shows is a graphic way to show our need of the removing of sin passed down generation to generation. So this is a declaration. It has nothing to do with with anything but God saying, don't you understand that I have to remove stuff? And the very item that passes it down generationally, not literally physically, that is the place where I want you to be reminded you need a move of God. But what happens is the Jewish nation suddenly gets arrogant and goes, well, see, I've got the sign. We've got the sign, so I'm a Jew, and obviously you're not a Jew because I'm in the sauna and, well, no, not involved in our movement. So I'm better than you. And then the person across the sauna is going, what is their problem over there? Now, the power of this is this. So Jewish people are saying, well, we're all clean, and none of you are. But God says, through Paul here, notice, that's only done by human hands, right? See, what actually really needs to take place is that's just a physical symbol. That doesn't save you. That doesn't include you in God's true people. It's when God changes your heart that the symbol becomes your heart, everything changes. It's like in the modern church today when people think when you're baptized, you get saved. Baptism doesn't save you. It's a sign of what's already happened to you. And so you got division, alienation, deprivation. And Paul says, well, all you non-Jews were real in real, real trouble. And we Jews think we're so much better than all of you. But actually, as I already taught you, we're not. And so we're all in trouble, right? Now, Paul keeps on going. And remember, he's writing to an audience that's mixed. And at this moment, coming into verse 12, he's speaking to the non-Jewish part of his audience in his church. He says, I already told you. That before Jesus, you were in trouble spiritually, right? And I actually don't want to heap it on, but the truth is, though we are also needing God, we had advantages over you as Jews, and and God gave them to us. I'm not going to write that off. It's true. He says in verse 12, remember that at the time you were separated from Christ, non-Jews, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. He said, listen, you as non-Jews had no contact with the promise of the Messiah, You're not Jewish, so you weren't part of the people of God. You had no access to all of the Old Testament and all the promises of Abraham and and Noah. And he says, fill in the blanks. Those were given to the Jews. And if that's not enough, you just don't have hope. Now you go, well, excuse me, Paul. How can you write off all these cultures and say they have no hope? Well, if you read the literature of the day, he's just reading their stuff. Greco-Roman literature, if you read it about the afterlife, is dismal. The world is controlled by petty gods that can do anything they want. It's controlled by fate and the stars. There's no such thing as real hope. You live and you die. You're probably a slave, thanks so much. 
He says, you have no contact with God. You have no contact with Israel. You have no contact with all the promises. You have no contact with the Messiah. And oh, by the way, you have no genuine contact with the living God. Because why? You're worshiping a bunch of idols and demons. He said, so this is your true condition. This is your true condition. But then he says, but that's not the end of the story. He says it again, verse 13, but now, but now, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. But now you've been brought near by Jesus in his work on the cross. His death, the beautiful exchange that Nikki led us in this morning, that song brings it home. Sin, trespass, death, alienation, separation, all of it has been removed. The power of the world, the ownership of the devil is broken because Jesus on the cross decided you could come home too. I was walking my daughter uh, through the playground the other day. And it was um, an interesting moment for me. As I was uh, walking her, I wasn't weeping, I'm okay. I was walking her and, uh, and, uh, and she was running off. And I watched something unfold around me. We've all experienced it because either we've been part of it or we've been at the brunt of it. In one side of the playground was a circle of girls, all in grade 7 and 8. Another circle of boys were on the other side, and there was one boy. There was one boy standing between both circles by a tree. And I observed this, and I watched him watch the circle of boys. No one else was watching him, all the kids running around, parents back and forth, just trying to contain chaos every day. But I watched him, and he was desperately watching the circle of boys. And I knew what was going on. I knew this was the guy who wasn't included. This was the guy who wanted to be included, but they had decided could not be included. I wanted to go up to the kid and say, it's going to be okay. Uh, they're all going to have their best time in high school. You're going to probably run the world, so it's going to be okay. <laughs> then I decided not to do that because I'd probably 911 charge. Why are you talking to my son? <laughs> you know, um, I did pray for him. I prayed that God would come close to him. I prayed that that kid wouldn't be damaged. Because I, I think we all know. I mean, I've been that kid outside of that circle many times. But as I thought about that, See, here's the power of our gospel. Jesus walks into the playground, walks over to the tree, takes the hand of the boy who is not included and says, walk with me, and puts him in the center of their circle and says, you are welcome. And the circle says, and we welcome you too. I mean, that is the deepest longing in the human heart. The deepest longing of every one of us, I don't care who you are, is, oh, accept me, please, for who I am. And Jesus comes and he says, I bring you acceptance that is not even in yourself. Paul says, for you who are all far off, demon-worshipping, pagan, idol people, no, no, you are welcome home through Jesus Christ. But then he says, it's not done. He says, let me now show you how this deals with the unity issue I'm facing down. Verse 14. For in himself, for he himself, he is our peace, verse 14. He has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the, the dividing wall of hostility. Now don't miss this this morning. Jesus doesn't just bring peace. 
He is the peace. He's the peacemaker between us and the Father and us and all of, the, all of the other Christians around us. We have a twofold peace with God and with each other. And we should not be shocked by this. I mean, the Christmas season is coming. And this is where we celebrate it the most. What did Isaiah the prophet write? Under the power of the Holy Spirit as he predicted the coming of Jesus. What was the description of Jesus? Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born. And I'm going to break it in song. And for unto us a son is given. Can you hear it in your head? And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God. Baritones, get ready. Everlasting Father. And what? Prince, say it loud. Of what? Peace. This is who he is. This is his DNA. This is not just his job description. This is Jesus. And when that first Christmas night happened, when the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace was born, what did the angels cry out over our dark, sinful, spiritually dead, demonically owned world? Luke 2, glory to God in the highest on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. See, this has always been the goal of God, to bring peace between us and peace through him to him. Like this is powerful. It comes from the idea of shalom, the old Hebrew word meaning well-being. Shalom in its biggest form means physical well-being, prosperity, security, good relationships, and integrity. God says that through Jesus that has begun, and in the new heavens and the new earth, we will have shalom in its fullest. Let me read this verse to you again. For he himself is our peace, who has made two groups one, and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. See, through Jesus, there is no difference now between the non-elect, disobedient, spiritually ignorant people and the elect, privileged, honored Jewish nation. Notice, they now are one through Christ. You see that little phrase, the barrier? Many of us read this and we, we, we miss the power of this. That dividing wall of hostility. Every person hearing this for the first time read in Ephesus would know if they were Jewish. They had done pilgrimage so many times to Jerusalem. And when you came to the great temple of Herod, there was a court called the court of the non-Gentiles, the, the, the non-Jews, the Gentiles. And if you tried to reach out to the living God of heaven and earth as a non-Jew, you were only welcome in that place. And amazingly, I found out again this week as I reread this, there was a large wall, a barrier separating the court of the Gentiles from the court of the Jews. And inscribed on that wall, this was written. No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing, everyone ready? Death. These inscriptions have been preserved. You can actually see the original inscriptions. One of them is found in Istanbul and the other one is found in the Rockefeller Museum in Jerusalem. When Paul writes this, and the first Christian Jews hear this in Ephesus, they are blown away because Paul is saying that you, when you went to go worship the living God at the temple, one of you would have to go one way, and the other would go the other way, and there was this huge wall erected that said, if you cross over, you will die. Jesus has torn down the wall. It's gone. And they're sitting in church going, are you joking me? Are you telling me that I can sit with a non-Jewish person and God's going to be okay with me? Yes. For God's plan is to tear down the barriers that we've erected and others have erected to bring us together because Jesus is creating a new movement. 
The revolution of grace, the power of the gospel is only fully experienced when you realize that Paul is declaring what they had thought was true for over a thousand years in that temple had been eradicated when Jesus rose from the dead. It is revolutionary at its heart. Jesus tore down every single barrier. He did it vertically between us and God, as he said in Ephesians 2.4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace we have been saved through faith. Love reached down into us, and Jesus by his birth, and Jesus by his life, and Jesus by his ministry, and Jesus by his teaching, Jesus by his deliverances, and Jesus by his miracles, Jesus by his death, Jesus by his resurrection, Jesus by his ascension, and Jesus by his prayers that he's praying right now for us has swept away every single barrier between us and a holy God. And he says not only vertically is that true, Horizontally, I'm restoring all things too. No matter your history, economic status, how intellectual or not you are, social, spiritual, racial, class, or creed, if you repent and come to God through Jesus, you are welcomed home. And these two opposing groups that have been taught their whole life to mistrust each other, hate each other, stood over against one another, name-called against each other, spit at one another, now they are brought together through Jesus. The ultimate expression of the barrier being ripped down is found in the next verse where Paul says, and how did he do this? Well, he did this by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. Now, don't misunderstand this verse this morning. This is not saying, well, we've got grace so we can throw the whole Old Testament out. I'm saved by grace. I can do anything I want. No. You don't get to throw the Ten Commandments out because this is declared. See, never forget why this happened. There are two sides to the law in the Old Testament. Part of it is called the moral law. It's the Ten Commandments. Those things that reflect the very nature of God. God hates adultery. Why? Because he is a covenant-keeping God. God hates murder because he's a life-giving God. God hates stealing because he's a gift-giving God. See, if you break the Ten Commandments, you attack God himself. They're not just laws. They're him. So there's the moral law. And then there's this ceremonial law, all these other things, like don't mix certain fabrics together. We won't get into that today. And all of those were ceremonial as foreshadows for what would come. And Jesus comes along and he says, listen, because you are saved by grace, why? Because I fulfilled the moral will of God, none of you did. Because I actually took the brunt of the hit from the Father, and I never ever sinned, so I'm perfect. So I have dealt with the law in my flesh that way. And all the ceremonial law, including not eating with non-Jews, that's abolished now because all of those were foreshadows of pictures of me. I'm here now. You're saved by grace. Should we still obey the Ten Commandments? Of course we should. But we don't do it to get in. We do it because we love him. And he says, look, I've set this all aside. And now, why was, why was I doing this? Verse 15, here gets to the unity issue. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, there it is again, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. Let me point this out. Jesus' death has killed any hostility you can raise against another. Jews no longer get to declare, we're the focus of God and you're just for the fires of hell. No longer can non-Jews declare that we're better than you. 
Non-Jews do not have to be raised to the level of a Jewish religious person. See, Jesus has done something new. He is creating a new race, a new humanity. He is recovering Eden. The redemption of Babel, what was actually good, is being brought back by a new move of God. No longer Jewish first. No longer non-Jewish is better. No more hatred, racism, or name-calling. It is now Jesus first. A third race. A new and recovered humanity through the peace of Jesus. That is why God has come into our world. And it says that he has reconciled us. He has put end to our conflict. He has put, back us, put us back on friendly terms. He's making us consistent and compatible. He's restored our lost history. And he has done this with God and each other. How can you say, I refuse to love another Christian when God has said, I have done all this in them too? How are humans reconciled to God? Never forget it's through the cross. As Paul would write in Colossians 1.20, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. See, when we trust in Jesus' life, in his death, in his resurrection, the very place where all our enemies are swept aside, we get peace with God and we are called to have peace with one another. And why? Because that act removes sin and sin is the thing that always leads to no peace. He says, we've been reconciled. And then Paul says again, we're all in this together. We were all in trouble together, and and now he's rescued us together. Verse 17, one of my favorite verses. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. This is a quote right out of Isaiah 57, 18. I've seen their ways, but I will heal them. I I guide them and restore comfort to Israel's mourners, creating praise on their lips. Peace, peace to those far and near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. I heard a pastor or a friend of a pastor tell me about an illustration that I think will bring this home. Imagine if I asked uh, as many people as I could to Newfoundland or Newfoundland, however you want to say that, different debate, okay. And we went to the tip of it, and I said, now we are going to swim to England. We're all going to swim to England. And some of us, well, we'll go, okay, okay. Now, I want you to think about it. Let's say we had the best swimmers in the world. Phelps and friends are in the room. Fine. We've got Olympic swimmers in the room. We've got normal people. We've got whatever. Everyone's there. And we all say, okay, we're going to swim to England. And so what happens? Well, some of us get in the water and we start drowning just because we look at the water and we freak out. Fine. Right? Then others of us keep going and we swim out one kilometer, then we're in trouble. Others swim out five kilometers. Other people, really athletic, 10, 15 kilometers, right in the Atlantic. And then some amazing swimmers, maybe they get out even like 40 kilometers. But here's the point. Everyone's going to drown in the end. It doesn't matter if you have 10 Olympic gold medals in swimming or you're me or you're you. The point is, it is an impossible thing to swim from Newfoundland all the way to England. You cannot humanly do it. And if you get farther than anyone else, eventually you will give out and you will have to cry out what? I need a savior. And Paul's point here is this. Some of you are so far away, you, you are so, so, so far away from God. And others of you, religious, following after, trying to be really good your whole life, you're way closer to God. But don't you understand? You all need the same thing. You still need peace from God. No one makes it to England without the rescue boat. And Paul says this is the foundation of our unity. 
And that's why he says in verse 18, through him, we have access to the Father by one spirit. I love this. There's the Trinity. Through Jesus Christ, we have access to God the Father because we are all commonly possessed by one spirit. He says, consequently, he says, let me use a lot of metaphors. You are no longer foreigners or strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. He said, if I want to say that our new movement is a city, fine. You're not a resident alien anymore. You don't just have a, a green card here. You're not even a foreigner. No, no. You're at home now. You're here. You're part of the city. You have a citizenship. See, Roman citizenship in his day was the most valued thing you could have 2,000 years ago. Not everyone had it. Most didn't. It was like a major deal. And Paul is saying, I promise you a citizenship that will never fade. It's given to anyone. A slave can have it, a master, men, women, anyone can have it. And you are all welcome home. You actually are citizens in God's kingdom. And remember, we started in a garden, but we end in a city, right? And that city is filled with no death, no mourning, no crying, no pain. The old order is going away. And so this is a declaration, you're home. Some of you are immigrants. You are new Canadians sitting in this auditorium. Durham is becoming a place where many of you are coming. We don't know your story, but you know what you've risked, what you had to leave, what you had to flee from, what you had to give up to come here. And you get here, and then there's the process of adjusting to things like cold, if you're from certain places, and all sorts of other cultural issues. And then you're like, well, I've got to wait. And then the day you become a citizen is one of the most significant things in your life because you know your story more than we do. But as I've hung out with new Canadians, they still say to me, I'm home. This is my home. But sometimes I wonder if everyone else thinks that I'm Canadian just like them. This is declaring, oh, no, no. You are home. You are a citizen through Jesus Christ. There is no levels here. Once you're in, you're in because we all needed the same peace. He says you are citizens in a new community. And he says, by the way, not only that, you're part of the family. He uses household language. That's why we can pray the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father who art in heaven, our common dad who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's what he wrote in, in Romans 8. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves, so you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your, your adoption in a sonship or daughtership. And by him we all, I'll add this together, together cry, Abba, Father. He says that you are a citizen in the new city. You together, we together are what? We are part of a new family that's being birthed. And then he says, let me use an image of a house. We are building, being built up into a brand new home. And that home, verse 20, is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as our cornerstone. He says the foundation is built by the early church leaders. And some of them, not all prophets were given this task, but apostles and prophets gave us the very word of God. And so we've got leaders and we've got the written word of God. And who's at the center? Jesus is our cornerstone. He's the one that fixes the building, determines its size, gives us shape and character. Every person would be thinking about Jerusalem again, reading this. See, at the foundation of actually the massive temple, there were multiple massive stones. The biggest one they found so far is 29 feet in length. It's the size of a railroad car. It's one stone. Imagine that was your job description to get that in place. And he's saying that Jesus is the cornerstone for the whole movement that we're part of. It's predicted in Isaiah 28. This is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a, fure, for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. It was interesting when Peter and John were told to shut up and never speak about Jesus again. 
by the religious leaders of his day. Do you remember how Peter responded? Acts 4.11, Jesus, he says, is the cornerstone, is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name given under heaven by which people must be saved. Jesus is the cornerstone. And, and then the leaders of our original movement are the foundation with the written word of God. And we then, we are also part of this house. He says that not only are we building, actually we're the temple. Over a thousand years, the temple was the only place to meet God like this. From Solomon to Zerubbabel to Herod, this was the place. But Paul says, you know what? It's an amazing temple. It's irrelevant now. It's irrelevant because actually you now are the temple. And you're the temple. And you're the temple. And you're the temple. You are the temple of God. He says in verse 21, In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to be a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. We are the building blocks of his temple. We are the temple now. God actually lives in each one of us that are Christians. It's what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6.19. Do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You're not your own. I learned this week something significant. See that word temple? When I think about the temple, I think about the whole complex. Like the multiple buildings, right? And and so, but that's not what this means. This, this means one thing. I think the Greek pronunciation is naos. I could be wrong. This is what it means. It means the inner, inner, inner sanctuary. The, when, when Paul says we are the temple, he says we are the holy of holies. Excuse me? Let me say that again. When Paul says we are the temple, he says that we are the inner sanctuary. We are the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies is where the Ark of the Covenant was, where God's very presence was, where only the high priest could walk in once a year and maybe survive the experience. And he says every single Christian on earth is a walking Holy of Holies. The living God of heaven and earth is possessing millions of us right now. Turn, look at your neighbor. Just do this. No, really, don't be, look at them. Okay, look the other way. They're possessed. (laughs) No, really. Ha, 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 no, really. Each person in this room is a Christian. I know some of you aren't. Each one of you has a sentient being living in, in you who's not you. The Spirit of God. Paul comes along and he says, do you not know that this is why we must have unity in the local church? How could you not have unity? How dare you talk down, gossip, slander, or attack someone who is the holy of holies on earth? How dare you touch the body of Christ like that? He says, you can no longer say, you Gentile dog. You can never say, oh, you religious, arrogant Jew. No, no, it's done. He says, this is the point of everything that God has done. God has come to bring peace into a world that has no peace. God comes through Jesus Christ and by his spirit, gives us peace with God and then with each other, and he calls us to walk now in new peace. You say, what does it matter? Here it is. Number one, our unity is found in the cross. This is Paul's whole point. 
All barriers are wiped away and destroyed. Our sin, we, it is forgiven. We are brought near to God. Our belonging is assured. We together are declared that we are citizens of the city. We together are part of the family. We together are the temple. We together are the building. We are the church. Alienation, division, name-calling, loneliness, fracture, lack of trust, envy, religiosity, lying, murder, and war have no place, have no place, have no place in the church. Why? Because Jesus is that it's done. There are many barriers we can re-erect from each other, age, appearance, intellect, political persuasion, economic status, race, a theological perspective on a secondary issue. We can re-erect barriers and say, no, you're not welcome. But Jesus comes now by his spirit and says, oh, C4 church, who are you to re-erect a barrier I have destroyed? This is my body. This is my temple. These are my people. There is no one that you can say, I will not affiliate with if they are a believer of Christ. God comes by his spirit, and I'm going to lead you this in a moment. We need to ask the Lord, what barriers are we re-erecting across our church that threaten that we're all in this together? Because there is no Jew, and there is no Greek, and there is no slave, there is no free, there is no man or woman. We are all one in Christ. We have different roles, different gifts, yes. But God, God values his body and values his unity. Why? Because the unity is a demonstration of his love to the world. Our unity is found in the cross. Number two, I want to say again to you that you are the dwelling place of God. The spirit of God is given to us to bring us to Jesus. The spirit of God is given to us to declare to us we are what we are. And the spirit of God is given to us to empower us in service. Please let me re-say this again. We need as a church to be praying more than we ever have before that, that the spirit of God, the nearness of the spirit of God would grow ever more because the more the spirit of God fills we the temple, more and more his character will show up, his gifts will show up, his power will show up, and we will become like Jesus. If some of you are so afraid of the Holy Spirit, I challenge you, do not be. You're already possessed by him. You've been created before the beginning of time to be his temple. This church must regularly cry out, oh, Spirit of God, you are welcome. You are welcome. Fill this place with your power. Do anything you must because we have been created to be your temple. Renewal happens when the Spirit of God removes all hiddenness and brings joy. Revival happens when the Spirit of God fills the temple to overflowing, that all people are loving Christ and wanting the presence of the Spirit and laying down hiddenness. And awakening happens when the Spirit of God is so heavy in multiple churches that it spills over to non-believers and people go, what is taking place? And we go, Christ has come. Our unity is the cross. God calls us to repentance and to guard it fiercely. We are possessed by the Holy Spirit. Everything, everyone ready? Lean in. Everything you've ever experienced from God is through the Holy Spirit. Everything. You must love him and invite him. We also are called to something else. As I come to the end of this, just listen to this. We are invited by God to join him on his mission. 2 Corinthians 5 says, If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old's gone, the new's here. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us what? The ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ but not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are there for Christ's ambassadors as though God was making his appeal through us. 
We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Church, our unity and the great work of God in our life is reconciliation, which at its heart is peace. And we are commissioned as God's ambassadors. No matter how good or broken we are, we are commissioned as God's ambassadors to go into our neighborhoods, into our workplaces, and tell them that there is a message of reconciliation that will bring peace that they have never seen. Do not fear. If God has ordained this for us, he will give us what we need when we step out in faith. I want to re-remind you that there are guaranteed places of meeting God. Guaranteed places of meeting, and one of them is you. Every time you walk into a situation, the Spirit of God is in you. You are a guaranteed place of meeting if you're a Christian. Every time we invite people into services, have you thought about this? And thousands, hundreds of us or, or, or more worship God and we sing to him. It's a guaranteed place of meeting. Why? Because God inhabits what? The praises of, of his people and we are the actual naos. We are the people who are the holy of holies. They will meet God if we invite them. Trust me, God is in this house because we are the house of God. Every time the word of God is preached, it's a guaranteed place of meeting. Every time Christians gather and pray, here's my point. Do not be afraid anymore. Invite like you've never invited before. Have coffee with people. Be authentic with people. Tell them the good news about Jesus. Invite them to church. Why? Because it is guaranteed they will meet God. It is not guaranteed they will say yes, but it is guaranteed they'll meet him. Why do you think he might not show up? We've been guaranteed the message of reconciliation. Do not fear. Go and tell. Our unity is in the cross. We are the dwelling place of God. We must ask for more of him. We must, without any guilt, go and share the good news. And then lastly, I just need to say this. Some of you are sitting here, and you are actually not part of the city. You've listened to this whole thing and said, John, very interesting. But I'm not part of that family. I'm not part of that, anything you just talked about. And here's what I'd say to you. Here's the good news of Christianity. Our God is called the Prince of Peace. He came and preached peace to you when you were far away and peace to those who are near. Some of you sitting or watching online are unbelievably far away from God. You are filled with darkness. You are consumed by materialism or, or sex, sexual garbage or you are involved in, in you listed out, you know it. Others of you are deeply kind and religious and moral and you're much nearer but you still don't know him. But this is what is declared to you this morning. Jesus Christ takes people who are far away and near and brings them close through the cross. What will you do with Jesus this morning? God is a God of peace. Christ is the Lord of peace. The gospel is a gospel of peace. The Spirit's fruit is peace. And God promises that if you embrace him through Jesus, peace will guard your heart and rule in them forever. So I invite you now, as the band comes up, we're going to do two responses, but as the band comes up, if you are not a follower of Jesus, whether you're very near to God, or you're very, very far away, God says to you, right now through one of his servants, come home. So pray this prayer, and no distraction, please. This is when we pray as community, right? If this is you, pray this, Lord Jesus Christ. You can say, I'm far or near, you can fill that in. But at this moment, I need peace. I need peace with you, and I need peace with others. And I can't do it. So I turn from my sin right now, and I say yes to you, Jesus. I accept you as Savior and Lord. I believe you rose from the dead, and I want you to give me the peace that this guy's been talking about this whole time. 
I want to know that if I die today, this moment, I will be welcomed home. Lord, forgive me of my sins and thinking I could swim all the way to England my whole life. I'm done. Come rescue me, I pray. Through Jesus only. Amen. just want to say, if that was you, tell a person you came with. Find someone with a lanyard and say, I prayed that prayer. Please do this because we, we need to do some, some follow-up with you to begin this journey. But before we end, church, there's no way we can hear the word of God like this and not pray ourselves. And so I'm going to ask uh, the Spirit of God, if it be his will, just to do this, and then we'll respond in song this way. Holy Spirit, where in this church is there division? Where in our hearts are we erecting barriers you said no longer have right here? I pray right now, Holy Spirit, you'd start bringing to people's minds, right across this church, people's faces, situations or attitudes. Now, if God has just given that to you, would you take a moment and say sorry? Say, Lord Jesus, forgive me. I would pray in Jesus' name too out of Ephesians 4 if the devil has been given a foothold in this church because of anger, uh, bitterness, slander, or unforgiveness. We just say in Jesus' name, you have to go now because people are repenting of their disunity. Oh Lord, heal what's being done right now and preserve it. Not only our unity, we now ask God as we prepare. We sang it, but we need to mean it. We are the temple of God and we want more of the Holy Spirit in this church. Holy Spirit, you make us like Christ. How could we not want you? Holy Spirit, fill this church to overflowing. Come in all of your power, all of your holiness, all your glory. Bring all the character of Jesus. Bring your conviction. Bring your gifts. And mark us with power that is unnatural. Help us to love God and love others. And, O oh Lord, as we approach the Christmas season, our last prayer is this. Give us boldness and courage to be ministers of reconciliation and declare to the world there is hope. Give us opportunity, we pray, that we've never had before as we invite and as we talk. We ask this in the name of Jesus, who's overcome all things between us and God. And everyone said loudly and truthfully, amen. Let's stand and end our service singing to this Christ.